Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 26, King Cotton and the Fire Eaters, Secession and the Ideology of Slavery. In looking at the Civil War, it's often difficult to separate out the fact that we, looking into the past, know what comes next. Most people in 1850 never imagined it. Although some Southern leaders screamed about secession in any given year, these erratic threats of separatism turned out to be no more than hot air at the time, until suddenly they weren't. Even Americans living in early 1859 frequently dismissed the idea. This does raise a pretty serious question, though. Where did the idea of secession come from, and why did it have enough power to cause such a vast civil war? In part, we can answer by exploring the key figures who shaped the Democrats, especially Southerners. The previous episode bore the subtitle of Jefferson and Calhoun at War. It's worth understanding the difference between the two men in ideology. Thomas Jefferson envisioned a republic built on relatively small freeholds of farmers, relatively independent, and liberated from the power of banks, manufacturers, merchants, and other urban centralizers. Jefferson was a slaveholding plantation owner, yes, and yet he did not place his hopes in plantations or slavery. Nominally, John C. Calhoun belonged to the same class as Jefferson, a member of the wealthy, politically active, eastern coastal social elite, his particular pathway led in a very different direction. The two men might actually have agreed on decentralized localism in government, but Calhoun identified slavery as the key institution of the South, and identified the South as being defined more or less by slavery. For years, he aimed to create a Southern Rights Party from the Democrats in the South, and he was the critical figure in spreading the idea of a separate Southern civilization. That concept was by no means inevitable or universal. He idolized the life of plantation slave owners, that is, men exactly like himself, and he more or less assumed that they could, would, and should be the leaders in society. His conception of liberty was that wealth, specifically the wealth created by slave, allowed the masters the ability and leisure to live life to its fullest. Or, in a kind of Orwellianism, to Calhoun, slavery created freedom. Now, Calhoun did not invent slavery, he did not import it into the United States, obviously. But it's hard to miss that his political acumen and considerable energy went into transforming the Jeffersonian concept of a free, if admittedly mostly white, civilization of citizen farmers into a slave-based society of separation and status. The one quirk of Calhounism was that he never wanted to split the South away from the United States. Whether this was just a measure of conservatism in his character is unclear, but the Leman himself held that the South needed the rest of the United States to thrive. So although Calhoun created many of the preconditions of the war, it is no accident that it only occurred well after his death, for he fought to keep the South strong inside the national system. Somewhat bizarrely, we can point to Andrew Jackson as a key figure who stayed off the crisis for a generation. Although he would probably never win any awards for political theory, Jackson had a great eye for practical democracy. He was a slaveholder and a southern elite, and yet his background gave him a very different perspective than Calhoun. He spent basically all his career in the South, 
Yet his was a broad view that encompassed voters, admittedly all white, from all walks of life. Andrew Jackson would never bend the interest of the United States as a whole purely to the design of one section. Calhoun did. He sacrificed everything to the slaveholding plantation. So although he intended to avoid it, Calhoun's desire to expand and protect slavery ultimately created its destruction. Indeed, even in his own life, well, the reality was that agricultural plantations had just about reached their limit in the Mississippi Basin. There simply wasn't the kind of land available for the extensive use of slavery anymore. Although slavery did come into limited industrial use, there too, it fell well short of dominance. This created a serious problem for many slaveholders, who needed to expand their economic opportunities westward. They therefore adopted expansionism as a primary goal, and this includes Calhoun. Unfortunately for them, and most definitely for the best for everyone else, there were severe problems with this plan. Eastern Texas could indeed support slavery, but Western Texas could not. The tiny number of slaves in the New Mexico Territory made no difference. California had no need for slaves, and in fact large-scale plantations just weren't practical in most of the vast dominions America acquired over the 1840s. Then the attempt to secure Kansas for slavery turned into a destructive political fiasco, not least because it failed to add another slave state. The southern leaders considered themselves the aggrieved party in all this, even though they kept getting what they were asking for. Just in Kansas alone, their political allies from Missouri sparked riots, range wars, arson, and murder. The problem here is that each victory the South gained in political terms, they lost in popular ones. The addition of Texas led to statehood for California and Oregon. The possible gain of Kansas led to the unification of Free Soilers in the Republican Party. Bizarre and feeble attempts to demand Cuba from Spain or restart the slave trade or desperate efforts to secure Nicaragua for slavery, and yes, that's a whole crisis we can explore one day. All this accomplished nothing in practical terms. But each madcap scheme by radicals made old friends into new opponents. But slaveholders appeared to be, in the main, psychologically incapable of accepting that their choices could have consequences. Now, slaveholders repeatedly and grimly muttered about the absolute imperative to achieve balance in the Senate. That is, to have at least as many slave state senators as free state ones. The difficulty here lay in actually doing it. Their attempts for expansionism, as already mentioned, made expansion impossible. Indeed, to the last, America simply wasn't adding any more plausible slave state territories, and there were relatively few foreign lands slaveholders could look to for support. Everywhere slaveholders turned, they perceived hostile anti-slavery forces. Mexico had abolished slavery in principle, if not entirely in practice, and sheltered slaves. Canada openly and warmly received any slaves who went there. Southern politicians offended Spain with the Ostend Manifesto. And finally, thanks to the Fugitive Slave Act, the South now encountered the deep displeasure of all the northern states as well. And the northern states were growing faster in population than ever, swelling their electoral importance while the southern states stagnated. The northern economy expanded even faster than that, as railroads and factories sprang practically out of the very soil. And yet, the gospel of Calhounism told slaveholders they were blessed and not cursed with the peculiar institution. 
they were so clearly in the right, and slavery so clearly elevated them. So obviously, they couldn't be the problem. It was everyone else who was wrong. But let us put politics aside for a moment and turn to the other great motivator of men, money. Because while we aren't looking at the economics of slaveholding or plantations today, it is important to understand the motivations of secessionism. In the economic sphere, we can see the vague and yet sharp sense of economic subordination felt by many Southerners towards the North. This was partly their own fault, and partly just circumstance. As we've seen, the South, or at least large sections of it, began to specialize heavily in the production of cotton. Demand for the staple was so great, and the Southern climate so well suited, that the best farmland largely went over to cotton production. Much of the Mississippi Basin produced far less food than it could have, and relied heavily on imported Midwestern corn and pork in turn. Free men, especially the young and those without extensive educations, could not easily go to work in factories because they didn't exist in the South, not least not mostly. But they also faced difficulties building themselves up by dint of effort, because the best land for farming already lay in the hands of the plantation owners. At the very least, self-development would probably not occur without getting involved in slavery in some way, and even then it might become a struggle. So many of these ambitious young people left for other parts of the country, where they might feel no very great loyalty to the slave system. And yet despite the agrarian legacy of Jefferson and the plantation-loving Calhoun, Southerners were hardly blind to manufacturing opportunities. Many thought that building textile factories closer to the raw cotton product made great sense, and the South had plenty of other natural resources that it would be easy to turn into intermediate or finished goods at home, and many fine harbors with which to ship them abroad. After all, shipping to the North or to Europe for manufacturing added costs, and took potential profits away from the Southland. In the meantime, some of these men also denounced the South's so-called economic slavery to the North. As an example of this in a histrionic sense, planter Joseph Lassine, I believe that's how his name is pronounced, wrote to John C. Calhoun himself, exclaiming, Our whole commerce is in the hands of Northern men. This was not entirely true even on its face, and we should always remember that physical mobility in this era was so common as to be almost unremarkable. A southern man might have been born in the north, while many southerners migrated north or west themselves in search of new opportunities, including the family of Abraham Lincoln, as we've seen. Nonetheless, it is true that manufacturing and finance in the north was cheap, effective, and growing cheaper and more effective every year. Meanwhile, northern-made goods were being eagerly expanded and consumed into commercial markets throughout the South. To answer this challenge, we can see that some Southerners took up the gauntlet of commerce happily. In 1846, James DeBow began pushing a regular magazine in New Orleans promoting industrialization, although the circular hardly sneered at agricultural improvements. The magazine, listed under various titles and usually referred to as DeBow's Review, turned into an influential finger on the pulse of Southern society, although its primary theme to begin with was manufacturing. And some industrial concerns showed that the possibility and talent existed if it could be made use of. For example, a boom in cotton mills began in North Carolina around 1820, where a new cotton mill opened, on average, every year across the state for more than two decades. In Richmond, Virginia, the Trigadier Iron Works opened in 1837 and became one of the largest and most successful foundries in the Americas. 
And yet apart from a handful of these bright spots, industrial growth truly did not take root in the years before 1860. Virginia and even North Carolina remained outliers within the South. Instead, investment in the South drifted the other way, towards land to grow cotton and the slaves to plant and harvest it. In a day when manufacturing made fortune after fortune across the northern United States and England and France and beyond, available southern capital went almost exclusively into one raw resource, cotton. There are probably several reasons why this occurred. First, and we should not totally dismiss this idea, many industrial operations generated a great deal of heat or were otherwise really unpleasant in the long, humid southern summer. Second, the continued booming demand for cotton made it relatively easy to do, so that those with the profits reinvested back into plantations rather than diversifying. But another aspect points to the social instead of economic side of slavery. As a young man once told Abraham Lincoln in Kentucky, you might have any amount of land, money in your pocket, or bank stock, and no one would be the wiser. But if you had a slave trudging at your heels, everybody would know you owned slaves. Full disclosure, I changed the quote slightly as the person who said it did not use modern language. I did not mean to deceive, but only to make this more acceptable. The meaning is clear in either case. Slavery didn't just make life easier, it meant pride and social standing. One final note combines the two to a degree. Southern opinion leaders held a distinct antipathy towards Yankee capitalism. Slave owners were, by definition, investors in small business in, in their own right, but we should understand that their idea was in part to create a manorial estate with a considerable degree of self-sufficiency. Now this was not possible in reality, because planters were completely dependent on international demand for cotton cloth. But it remained the kind of idealized and internalized fantasy of the planter class. Much like the aristocrats of Europe, planters expected a certain deference in society, though based in wealth rather than ancestry, mostly. Some of the prominent families owned wealth in slaves for generations, their names returning again and again to public office or high station. Descendants of Thomas Jefferson and Light Horse Harry Lee served in the Confederacy. Yet those weren't the average Confederate either. Quite a few parvenus and self-made men would go on to form the Confederate government, and if anything, they were even more arrogant and aristocratic than the old families. Regardless of the reason, though, the gravitational pull of slavery kept ensnaring society more and more. If nothing else, those with the money and power in society were almost universally slave owners in the South, with large plantations. Unsurprisingly, they dismissed, at least in public, any questioning of the means they used to get there and stay there. And their domination of society was indeed powerful and not confined to the immediate question of slavery, for it encompassed every aspect of life. The public offices were filled with plantation masters, who had the money and time to spend on politics. They thoroughly dominated the Anglican Church and tore the Baptists in half to avoid any challenge on the point of slavery. They controlled the schools and the universities. Who would challenge them on their own turf? Who could even hope to do so? The net result of all of this is simply that industrial buildup suffered, and it suffered in the specific not for lack of opportunity, but for the capital and expertise to make use of it. Slaves in plantations consumed the cash that would otherwise have been available. There is a double irony to this. 
for slaveholding was by no means free of cost to society. Slaves might have wants and needs, but in the economic sense, a third of the southern population had almost no way of seeing to them. Even if they worked twice as hard, they would gain nothing by it. Slaveholding in that sense stunted the growth of a domestic economy. Slaves, and to a lesser degree free African Americans, forcibly subsisted on a bare minimum, and yet they accumulated no capital, as did Irish people often living in squalorous conditions in the North. Layered on top of this, keeping the slave population under control required planters to institute patrols and constant vigilance and inflict violent retribution for any perceived challenge, and laid a considerable portion of self-deceit on top. Now, the masters did not directly pay the price for this, but yes, society as a whole did. And then at result was a society half stuck in a rut of its own making, shamed by the counterexample to its north. Even Debose Review, which began as a promotion of economic diversity, turned more and more into the promotion of cotton and slavery as the 1850s wore on. The magazine never limited itself strictly to practical economics. Instead, in the tendency of magazines everywhere to cover broad cultural ideas, it gave a voice to Southerners with big ideas. Among the many contributors was one particular man of importance, Edmund Ruffin, who represents some of the contradictions of Southern slaveholding. Ruffin is today remembered, if at all, mostly for his work as a pro-slavery activist, among the most strident and hardline of them all. Along with the influential politician Robert Barnwell Rett, Ruffin created a circle of secessionist thinkers who represented the most radical element in the South. A small group, at least until relatively shortly before the Civil War, these fire-eaters breathed revolutionary flames everywhere they had a chance. At the basic root, they took Calhounism to its end. If the South was a separate civilization, it deserved to be a separate nation, in their eyes. And yet, Ruffin was more than just a secessionist preacher. He is, or was, known as the father of soil science, at least in America, and for good reason. He significantly advanced our knowledge of farming techniques based on soil qualities. And he studied this devoutly, despite being born to wealth and privilege. And he does seem genuinely to have led an intellectually active life, without going into politics as so many of his peers did. At the same time, Ruffin led a social group dedicated to reforming slavery in order to curb its abuses. All of that good will be in the historical memory, largely and perhaps justly destroyed by Ruffin's fanatic adherence to secession, which he promoted in the pages of Debose Review. Nor was he the only secessionist who spread their ideas in that periodical, which circulated widely in the South. This leads us to one specific point. Secessionists were hardly hidebound or backward. On the contrary, they were often well-educated and keen participants in the world of ideas. Their logic, though self-serving to their own class, only took broader concepts to their necessary ends. To put it simply, their view was one that most Americans accepted or endorsed white supremacy, and therefore the slaveholder should be proud and certainly not ashamed of himself. Now, this message fell flat when conveyed to many average Americans, North and South alike. However flawed in intellectual terms, they might accept one moral ill and not another, because people aren't necessarily perfectly consistent. We are often better than our worst ideas. But slaveholders liked the message very much, although until 1860, most were still fundamentally loyal to their nation over slavery. 
Now, in one sense, this was all surprisingly normal in that day and age. The European revolutionary forces unleashed in 1848 weren't necessarily more or less rational than secessionists in how they wanted to redraw the map or why. European nationalism wasn't necessarily right or wrong, but it tended to draw its legitimacy from extremely broad overarching ideas, and it overlooked many inconvenient or awkward facts. Secessionists, and later Confederates, would go on to repeat many of those mistakes. Nonetheless, keep Edmund Ruffing in mind, because we will come back to follow along with him in the future, from the glory days of Fort Sumter to the final fall of the Confederacy. Now you, as the listener, may ask, what could have possessed people to make a civil war? Why did Ruffin and other plantation masters first breathe revolution and then leave one? They already had wealth and additionally an immense amount of national political power. With all of that on the line, why did they believe that they could do so and should do so? The answer to all of these questions, in short, is cotton. We've discussed the vast wealth that flowed into the South from the staple, the white gold, Yet we have perhaps not explained how it captured the imagination of the region and transformed its commerce. Cotton in the 19th century looked more like tea or sugar in the colonial era, or perhaps oil today. As commodities, their worth stretched far beyond money. It was a resource worth fighting wars to control, and the subject of much concern from major world governments. Economically, it had eclipsed linen and woolen goods, such that southern cotton was being exported across the globe. It is therefore not that surprising when, in 1858, James Hammond, a planter from South Carolina, delivered his much-lauded and equally loathed King Cotton speech in the Senate. This sums up much of the Southern position. Now that being said, it should be understood that Hammond was an ultra-radical even in the South. He should not necessarily be taken as an average Southerner or even an average slave owner. Uh, for example, in the speech, he claimed that the southern system of slavery was harmonious and that the slaves were well compensated. He compared it favorably to wage labor, while sneering down his nose at the barbarian immigrants flowing into the north. These positions were not universal even among the southern elite. Recall that southern Democrats specifically denied the position of the American or Know Nothing Party. And, moreover, much of what Hammond said was untrue and not necessarily believed. Yet one key aspect of his speech did hold immense implications for Southern views on their power and place in the world. Would any sane nation make war on cotton? Without firing a gun, without drawing a sword, should they make war on us, we could bring the whole world to our feet. The South is perfectly competent to go on one, two, or three years without planting a seed of cotton. What would happen if no cotton was furnished for three years? I will not stop to depict what everyone can imagine, but this is certain. England would topple headlong and carry the whole civilized world with her, save the South. No, you dare not make war on cotton. No power on earth dares make war upon it. Cotton is king. As to the truth of things, well, we will see. But this specific sentiment was undoubtedly a snapshot of how Southern leaders conceived of their place in the world. They put themselves in the center and imagine that everything revolved around men. Keep in mind as well that this speech came in the aftermath of a sudden and crippling economic panic, which would help destroy the Buchanan administration and help shape the life stories of several of the Civil War's leading figures, 
Generals Grant and Sherman among them. At the moment Hammond delivered his speech, the slave-owning South had committed itself to an economy based almost entirely around one commodity. Is it any wonder, then, that they acquired a hair-trigger for anything that could threaten the flow of white gold outward or actual gold inward? Slave owners, in the main and especially in the commercialized plantation world, held very little sentimentality towards any one slave. They could and did buy and sell as needed. Some owners, in fact, had no particular problem making examples of slaves, just to encourage others. But any threat to slavery itself threatened their wealth, which is their only real power. They knew it, and that could not be tolerated. This is why the territory gained in the Mexican-American War turned into such a devastating fire. In the East, slavery began to look weaker as the institution hollowed out, more or less as the Founding Fathers expected. Despite the secure power of planters, slaves were being drained away towards the Mississippi region, and the soil in some areas was even drained of its own vitality or was never suitable for cotton in the first place. This put the long-term future of slavery under threat. If it didn't expand westward, what would happen when, say, Virginia abolished the institution? Sure, that seemed improbable in 1860. But given another decade or two, would the peculiar institution not experience inevitable decline? What would happen if the abolitionists continued their relentless campaign of aging fugitives? To the elite, the future of slavery looked very questionable. For all their bluster, Slavery advocates were beginning to see that plantation agriculture had little future in the West. Now, there is some truth and some falsehood in this. Slavery was in fact in decline in Virginia, but only very slowly even in the best case. And the cause of any decline was that planters in the Mississippi region tend to buy up slaves sold from the East. Escapes constituted an almost unmeasurable portion. And yet, Delaware was already practically a free state, and Maryland trending that way, and the West really was not going for slavery. And yet, there is another side to this. Implicit in all of these points is the notion that a free people would never vote for slavery. The plantation masters, whatever their rhetoric, knew that slavery simply wasn't wanted where it had not already sunk deep roots. Thus, they went to the increasingly bizarre and self-destructive lengths in Kansas. And when their actions turned the entire North against them, they had no ready answer. What else were they going to do? Admit they had gone too far and should retrench and figure out a new winning political strategy over the next four years to build a strong coalition to win the presidency? I mean, that was obviously just crazy talk from weak-kneed and fearful compromisers. All this taken together should suggest that whatever high-minded rhetoric about the inevitability and dominance of the cotton economy they might promote in Washington, or even later in Richmond, Plantation owners had a real and deep fear about the strength of their institutions. They responded rapidly to any perceived threat, and in doing so ultimately destroyed their own political position. Upon realizing the magnitude of the folly, the response was not to change their tactics, try to appeal to moderates, or otherwise strengthen that position. Instead, they resorted to destroying the nation itself. There was one other practical fact which lay behind this, a curious trait which Southerners themselves often missed or assumed was merely natural. Slave owners formed an oligarchy, one which was legally mandated in some states. In Virginia, for example, 
exclusionary laws required that some high political offices could only be filled by people owning so much property. This was a very low bar to clear for a slave owner with land in the rich east. It was an impossible barrier for an ambitious man in the less wealthy Appalachian region. South Carolina simply demanded some of its office holders to own slaves. And while the states to the west did not have similar rules, in each case, slave owners completely dominated politics. In office, these politicians talked to one another, they admired one another's supposed virtues, they intermarried, and they formed tight political blocks. When they went off to Washington, they often roomed together in boarding houses. And, in the salons late at night, the loudest voices not uncommonly dominated. Those who might have been amenable to compromise over slavery also tended to be vulnerable to political or social pressure. Small wonder that there was always some audience for any darn fool radical idea, if it was congenial to the interests of slave owners. And those ideas that we've seen were being printed in magazines and newspapers with wide circulation. Robert Barnwell Rett, who we've mentioned several times, was an active participant in the original nullification crisis. Through his son, he also had a powerful influence on the Charleston Mercury, which spent the next 30 years actively campaigning for a separate southern nation. Although not precisely a follower of John C. Calhoun, mostly because he was too arrogant to follow anyone, Rhett basically echoed every word of Calhoun's gospel of slavery. And although it took him 30 years to do it, Rhett finally succeeded. In 1860, almost immediately after Abraham Lincoln's election, South Carolina would finally pull the trigger, figuratively and later literally. Having persuaded themselves that they were a sovereign nation unto themselves, South Carolina aimed to create a new world power, centered on its own interest, that is, slavery. It would be inherently devoted entirely to slaveholders and repression of African Americans, and none of those high-minded ideas of liberty and justice for all. Our next full episode will be 27, and if you added a few bonus episodes, then we've basically had one for every single year since the nullification crisis. In some ways, our next episode is almost a direct sequel to it, for it is the secession crisis. This has been the American Civil War Podcast, and I hope you'll join us next time.